Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio with the Forgiveness Doctor, Dr. Michael Rice. I'm Jeannie Rice, your co-host. We also have co-hosts Dr. Tim Hayes and Michelle Pichet. We will share with you the wisdom of the first century Aramaic internal process of forgiveness. We offer tools and support five days a week. We will support you in building a solid foundation within yourself to live in pure love in Aramaic, Brachma. Michael is the author of the book, Why Is This Happening to Me Again? For more information about the forgiveness process, please visit www.whyagain.org. And now, welcome to the show, Mind Shifters Radio. Welcome to Mind Shifters Radio. I'm Tim Hayes. I'm your host for the first hour. And today is Wednesday, January 17th, 2024. As always, we're grateful to everyone who's joining us here today, whether you're listening live or through the archives, as we spend another couple of hours teaching and supporting people in using some of the most powerful, effective, efficient, and accessible tools I've ever encountered. These tools are available absolutely free through the tireless efforts of Dr. Michael and Jeannie Rice on the website at whyagain.org. If you go to that website and click on the two words that say Start Here in the upper left-hand corner, it will take you to a page where you can download and read Chapter 24 of Dr. Michael Rice's book. His book is titled, Why Is This Happening to Me Again?, And that chapter of that book contains a narrative description and explanation of the primary tool in this work. That tool is called the Reality Management Worksheet, sometimes called the Reality Management Wake-Up Sheet. And it's a tool I've been using to great effect for over 19 years now to improve the quality of my life and most of my relationships and turn any negative emotional experience I have into part of the infallible guidance system that each and every one of us has been given. You can also download the actual worksheet process itself. It's a simple PDF file. Click the link, download it, print it off, copy it as often as you would like, and use it over and over again absolutely free. You can also go to your app store and type in the three words, Heartland Aramaic Forgiveness. And if you choose to do that before you're done typing the word forgiveness, you'll see the glowing heart icon. If you tap on that, it will let you download a completely free and private app that contains the Reality Management Worksheet. It contains an abbreviated version of that worksheet process, and it contains a copy of the Dragon Klingon game, which is a wonderful way to introduce these tools to even younger audiences. We hope people do all of that soon and often, primarily because it tends to improve the quality of people's lives the more they actively apply these tools in their lives. And secondarily, because it tends to prompt comments, questions, answers, and testimonials. And if you have any of those to share with us, we would appreciate you doing so by giving us a call at 563-999-3581. Once you do that, press 1 on your phone. We'll put the little icon of a hand by your phone number. I will turn on the microphone and announce you by your area code, and we can have a conversation. Alternatively, you can send us an email. You can email me at tjh 
at mindshifters-academy.org, or you can email Jeannie at J-E-A-N-I-E at whyagain.org. That's W-H-Y-A-G-A-I-N dot O-R-G. And if we get a comment or a question from you, an answer or a testimonial, we will address it on the Internet show. And then, as time allows, send you a notification about what day and time that happens so you can listen back to the archives for your input or feedback. We greatly appreciate whenever anybody does that because it just makes it far easier for us to live into our intention with this work when we know how this this process, our sharings, uh, the format of the Internet show, how they're landing for you, whether or not it's helping you in what we hope is your quest to learn how to use these tools more and more effectively and efficiently in your life. So we had a support group last night. We'll have another one tomorrow night. I think as I was getting off the show yesterday, it dawned on me that I hadn't mentioned the support group. And I I usually like to mention them on Tuesdays and Thursdays so that um, people have an opportunity to join us or share the information with somebody that they think might benefit from joining us. It's absolutely free, and all the information you would need to join us is available on the MindShiftersAcademy.org website. So please continue to be aware of that. Take advantage of it. Help us as as you see fit by sharing that information with others, whether you can join us yourself or not. We greatly appreciate it. It is a, a um, I'll call it a wonderful community of people who are going deeper and deeper all the time into their own processing and their own awareness of use of the tools. We had someone do a worksheet last night, and we had um, some rather intense discussion about one of the biggest one of the biggest things that's helped me in my in my process and my work is the idea of getting really practiced in the process of training my mind to cancel my need to be right. It is literally the opposite of decades of conditioning in my life, in school and family life and religious life. Everything I've been trained into has been find out what's right, do what's right, say the right thing, have the right answer, spit it out on the tests in school, argue for what's right, stand up for what's right, fight for what's right, etc. And this work calls us to the awareness that our perception is so limited that we have no idea what right is moment to moment. We're just making it up as we go. Fortunately, there is a guidance system. Fortunately, there is this feedback system within us. You can call it your physiological energy system or your tension or your emotions. 
And the idea is that whenever that energy system that you're living in is experiencing a tightness or a tension or an upset, one of the best uses of your awareness of that energy flow is to treat it as though it's an alarm system letting you know that whatever you're doing with your mind energy in that moment is off the mark. It's in error. It's not accurate. Or it's only partially true because you're seeing such a small, small segment of everything that's going on in any given moment. You can't possibly know the absolute truth in any given moment. So... This ties in with the description of a forgiveness process by Glennon Doyle, which we covered, I think, on Monday, where the idea is to just zoom out from whatever picture your mind is showing you whenever you have any upset and zoom out and then zoom out again and zoom out again. Get a bigger, broader, deeper, more comprehensive image of what's going on in the flow of life, on this planet, in this solar system, in this galaxy. And as you do, to whatever degree you're able to do that at deeper and deeper levels, things make more and more sense. Because the more we see things clearly, the more the flow of life shows itself to just be that. It's just the flow of life. It isn't... There's little, if any, value in an absolute sense, and some would say there's absolute detriment every time we judge. That's what the way of mastery was calling us to in the third lesson, to understand that every time we judge anything in any way, we create such a constriction and a contraction in our energy system that the actual functioning of the cells in our bodies ceases to be properly functioning energies don't don't flow correctly nutrients aren't absorbed waste isn't excreted the cell ceases to function properly every time i engage mind energy of judgment and how can that be well because my mind energy is not separate from this thing i call a physical body and if you listen to Dr. Michael Rice, he loves to quote Einstein. And he's paraphrasing Einstein, but essentially Einstein says, there is no matter. What we have heretofore called matter is energy. Energy whose vibration has been so lowered or slowed down as to be perceptible to our senses. Everything is energy. There is no matter. Well, Within that understanding, another level of understanding is that energy is a creative force. And, you know, some people say, well, it's creative or destructive. Well, it's a force that moves things, that expands. When, when you talk about basic physics from high school class, they tell you that, you know, in the laws of thermodynamics, that at the Newtonian level of physics anyway, that energy can't be destroyed it can only it can't be created or destroyed it can only be changed in its form 
It just changes form. Well, one of the things that we've been given dominion over as conscious human beings is our conscious mind energy. And that is, I like to think of it as a little fire hose coming off of the one divine central energy flow of all life that I get to point in one direction or another. I don't get to turn it on or off. I don't get to decide if it's going to be a creative force or not. I can just point it in one direction or another. And if I point it in a certain direction, I experience more of whatever I point it towards. So if I point it towards thoughts of anger, I experience more anger. If I point it towards thoughts of gratitude and joy, I experience more gratitude and joy. And the way of mastery is calling us to be aware, very consciously, vigilantly, committedly aware of what we're choosing to do with our thoughts, with our mind energy. And it talks about it in a variety of different ways. It says this body-mind unit that you have is just a communication device that's all it is you are constantly communicating to the world around you and the people around you what you value and you're doing that by what you're choosing to focus your mind energy on not only do you get more of whatever you focus your mind energy on but you're sending a signal to the world to the energy system around you to the people in your life that this is what you value in any given moment And as you do that, you create experience in your life. And this way of mastery as a set of tools recommends that we choose to value love, that we choose to value direct observation of our own experience in life, that we choose to understand that there's a lot more going on here than just the physical and that we tune into the bigger picture, the connection to our source, etc., so that we are consciously reminding ourselves moment to moment, as they say, even prior to every breath, that our true nature is love, we were born of love, we're created of love, we are love, and that that never changes. We might shift our awareness away from it from time to time, And yet it doesn't change the actuality that we are connected to the sources of energy, life, the flow of life, the miracle of life that gave rise to us. And the more we are willing to say in each moment, I'm choosing for love, I'm choosing for the actuality of life, I'm choosing to share only my loving thoughts the more we create an experience of our lives that's closer to the the totality that's available. And, in like, like fashion, the more I choose for judgment, I choose I'm, I'm right and the world is wrong, the more I choose for anger or bitterness or frustration, the more I, I'm going to experience that. And there's no ifs, ands, or buts about it. What I choose to focus on 
I experience. One of the ways Guy Finley says it is, the world's been set up in such a way that whatever you choose to focus on teaches you about it. One of his other shortcut phrases is, as goes my attention, so comes my experience. I like to say it as, I like to tell you two things about yourself that you'll probably find is true if you observe it. The first one is, you have the infinite capacity to choose the focus of your conscious awareness in each new present moment. The second thing I'd like to share with you is that it's the focus of your conscious awareness in each new present moment that actually creates your experience of life in that moment and nothing else creates your experience of life in that moment. If you're willing to observe this for yourself, if you see it as I have seen it, what you wake up and realize is you're a very powerful creator. And you've been creating, as Michael Rice would like to say, you've been creating unconsciously. You've been doing this process of creation even though you didn't know you were the one creating it or that your thoughts were creating your experience. And that's perfectly okay because you can only know what you've been taught by your family and by your culture and by your conditioning and your friends and your life experience. Therein lies the value of spiritual teachings like this. They introduce you to something that is different than anything you've been introduced to before. One of the ways Guy Finley likes to talk about it is to say, no true spiritual act is done with certainty. If it's certain, if I'm certain, hey, this is going to work out great, what that means is this is something I've already done before. And I'm anticipating that I know the results. How could I know the results? Because I've already done it dozens of times. He says, any true spiritual act or act that contains the potential for growth must be done with absolute uncertainty and, he says, with terror, right? I must, I must be thinking as I take a step out into this new approach to things, I must be the dumbest person ever because I'm about to do something that looks on the surface it looks from my conscious logical mind. It looks from the way that my culture would teach me that this is wrong. This is stupid. This is going to, this can't possibly work. Why? Because it doesn't fit the logical model and the purely physical model. Well, this is something we ran into in the group last night. We were having a discussion about things, and people were getting very, very agitated. And I offered the suggestion that we come back to basics. And we just begin, redouble our efforts to practice canceling our need to be right. Why would I do that? Well, in the first place, because it's something we don't do very often in this culture. So at least it's different. It has a chance of bringing different results because at least it's not doing the same thing over and over again, hoping for different results. And the second reason for doing it is because there are 
clear observations we can make if we're not stuck in the intense negative emotions, clear observations we can make that let us know we don't know everything, that there's far more going on here than any any conscious mind or even all human minds, conscious logical minds put together can comprehend. So if I don't like the emotions I'm generating or the fear I'm generating about what's going to happen in the future, when I work with the few bits of information that are hitting my senses and I'm generating all of this intense negativity, why not? interrupt that process and one of the best ways to interrupt that process is to practice this verbal cancellation process canceling my need to be right and asking to be shown another way to look at my current life situation well as we experience as i've experienced for decades now in this work that is an extraordinarily difficult challenge for people when they're actually triggered to upset. If people are sitting calmly around having a spiritual discussion, they can see, oh, that might be interesting. Well, yeah, let's try that. At the same time, if anybody is triggered to the point of generating a negative emotion in their system, it's an extreme challenge to interrupt that process because as Dr. Michael Rice likes to say the mind is an evidentiary device it's just going to serve up to you evidence to prove whatever you tell it to serve up to you so if you make a statement like you made me angry or Larry is really upsetting me, your mind is now just that faithful servant, that very simple servant. And it's just going to search through its data banks, which are the past, your experiences of the past, and the way you've interpreted them and put them, re- recombine them in different ways. It's going to search through your past experiences and your interpretations of life and all the conditionings that your family and friends and language have poured together, and it's going to come up with evidence to demonstrate to you how Larry's the source of your upset, how Barb is absolutely wrong here, etc., etc., etc. And that is a prison. That's a trap. That is, I'm going to figure this out. Michael Rice calls it the number one solution, pseudo-solution for the non-being mind. I'm going to make sure that I feed my thoughts with the data which helps me reach the conclusion that I'm right and everybody else is wrong. Perhaps even the world itself is wrong. Perhaps even God, light, love, the flow of life is wrong. I hate God, etc., How do I generate thoughts like I hate God? Easy. I think I know better. And since for every one of us, our experience of God is created by our thoughts about words we've been taught, 
and life experiences we've filtered through those words and language. So who or what I think God is, is my own internal mental creation. And so when I have this thought that God is supposed to make it so that I never feel pain or that I never have uh, money problems or that my lover never leaves me because I've prayed and I was taught that if I pray enough, if I'm fervent enough in my prayer, it'll happen, then, well, I know I'm praying as hard as I can, so God must be wrong, so now I'm going to hate God when things go away the way that I don't want them to. That trap, which we can boil down to the idea that I'm right and I know better, is it's pretty much universal for the human mind, at least in the Western mind. As I can talk from, that's where I was raised. It's pretty much a universal thing that we generate our upset because we think things are supposed to be different than they are. As life is unfolding, I don't like it, and then I generate upset about it. So last night, we... we ran straight into that wall at about 60 miles an hour in the support group. Several people were just generating more and more upset, and the more they did worksheets, the more upset they got, and the more they tried to cancel the goals, the more they thought, it's stupid, why would I cancel this goal? I know this is the right goal. I know this person shouldn't be in the political realm. I know that blah, 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 on and on and on. And we did our best to try to introduce concepts from the way of mastery, this invitation to step in into the empty-headed not-knowingness, the invitation that comes before the, the, the lessons even start in this book. In the beginning of the book, before it even starts, there's a little writing from Yeshua called The Promise. And in The Promise it says, please, if you would like to reach the goals you say you want to reach, just do this. Put on the altar of your heart with every breath. Put down everything you think you know. Put down everything you think you need. And ask to be shown a way to look lovingly upon every place that fear has made a, a home in your mind. Every time you've made a judgment about something as bad or wrong. Cancel your need to be right. Put down everything you think you know. Put down everything you think you want or need. And cancel every judgment that's led to negativity or fear in your mind. And look lovingly upon it as just a part of the learning process, a part of being at play in the kingdom, a part of growing in awareness that your conscious logical mind is this tiny, tiny, tiny little speck of dust on a dirt clod on some planet trillions of miles away from where you are. And the essence of your life, whatever the energy is that's keeping your heart beating and your food digesting and giving you the ability to have conscious awareness, is unchanged forever by those thoughts that you have. So, 
any way you can do it, people say, why would I do that? And my answer last night was simply, I can't really tell you why. All I can tell you is, and I can't tell you what's going to happen in your life as if you choose to practice canceling your need to be right, if you choose to practice stepping into that empty-headed not-knowingness, if you choose to practice asking before every breath to be taught by life, by love, all I can tell you is the more I have practiced that in my life, the more I prefer the way my life unfolds. The more time I spend in the positive emotions, the less time I spend in tightness and tension and negative emotions, the more I see things unfolding in a way that's blessing myself and others, even when a situation happens that results in some physical disturbance or disruption or pain or my plans for the day or the week get blown out of the water. When I don't go to judging it as bad or wrong, I far more quickly see, oh, this is working out in ways I could never have predicted that are better in many ways than anything I could have planned. So I have no idea how it will unfold for you. I just know that words can't tell you and no one else can do it for you. You have to make a choice. Each one of us has to choose between fear and love in each new moment. That's the message we're being given, especially in this Lesson 6 in the Way of Mastery that's titled Love Heals All Things. Where we left off yesterday is with the heading Feeling is the Doorway to Love and Freedom. And the text reads, If your commitment is indeed to look within and discover each and every obstacle that you have ever created to your awareness of the presence of love. Now I'm adding the phrase to your awareness because the way it's written is not very accurate regulatory speech because you, you, you're always in the presence of love. You are love. You can't be outside the presence of yourself. You can't be disconnected from your creator so the presence of love is a given your awareness of it comes and goes based on how you choose to direct your mind energy so it says if your commitment is indeed to look within and to discover every obstacle you've ever created to your awareness of the presence of love then why do you resist feeling those things for well has it been said to you that on just the other side of that feeling that you resist is the love you seek. This is like Guy Finley saying, the lessons we need to learn in life ride into our lives on the back of the events we don't want. If we reject the lesson, we reject the revelation, we stay stuck. If we generate resistance, we stay stuck. The text here goes on and says, Deny not the role of feeling in this dimension, for feeling is everything. You cannot even know the presence of the Creator unless you feel it. You cannot think about the presence of the Creator 
You cannot insist on a belief about the presence of the Creator. This does not do it. That never fills your cup. Feeling fills your cup. Feeling. Unbridled, unblocked, unobstructed. Feeling. That is the doorway to the love, capital L, love, that sets you free. Therefore, whenever you say, I don't want to feel this, rest assured what you are truly saying is, yes, the doorway to the kingdom of heaven is right in front of me. But if you think I'm going to open it, you're crazy. It's not worth it anyway. What is worth it is protecting this substitute that I've created. The text goes on and says, I've called this the ego, the false self. It is what I once described to you as a gnat shouting at space. Quote, that's what I'm committed to, and I'm going to protect this thing. Are you asking me, would I give up heaven to protect this useless little thing? Heck yes. You'd better believe I'd be willing to make that sacrifice. What is heaven anyway? It's a bunch of love stuff, a bunch of people running around in bliss, some of them without even bodies, hanging out in unlimitedness and fearlessness and utter fulfillment. Who needs it? Oh, but this little gnat of mine, this little I know I'm right and the world is wrong, I'm going to make that shine. I'm holding on to that at all costs. The text goes on and says, How many times have you tried to make that little gnat shine? For instance, you have thoughts like, Hey, everybody notice, it's shining, please. Notice how great I am. I'm making my little gnat shine. Listen to my whining and complaining and lamenting. Oh, the great sadness Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Oh, how grand my little gnat is. Close quotes. Meanwhile, the love of creation flows through a multitude of universes and creates forever, even new universes. And the love of the creator does not even notice the gnat at all. No one is paying attention. Your friends around you do not want to pay attention, although sometimes you corner them and they have no choice. But those of us without bodies, do you really think we waste our precious eternity taking your attempt to make the gnat shine and make it serious? No, indeed. Because we love you, we give you the space and the honor. We honor your free will to be as little and as miserable as you wish. So, sidebar, if you want to insist that you're right and the spiritual teachings are wrong and you know that so-and-so should never be president again and you know that what so-and-so did was so horrific that they deserve to burn in hell for all eternity, if you want to hold on to that, you can and the Creator, and the friends without bodies, the spirits, the angels, the masters, they will not interfere with your decision to create, even when you create pain, fear, sadness, hurt, contraction, bitterness, resentment, vengeance. Instead, the text goes on and says, we will wait until you choose 
to come once again into the greatness in which you truly reside. We never withdraw love from you. We simply look through your storyline because what we wish to love and to extend love to is the Christ that dwells within you. You might ask yourself, what day and hour will I decide to love myself, extend love to myself, see my true nature just as the Creator sees me? To truly once and for all, make the decision to live life in the full awareness of your true nature as love. For until you decide to live with and for and forever from the mind of Christ, until that happens, your life has not yet begun. Well, right away, the mind reacts and says, oh my God, that's a bit of a blow, isn't it? Come on, Yeshua, look at all the experiences I've had. How can you tell me I haven't lived? Why, there was this drama over here, and then there was that drama, and then that drama over there. Don't you remember 17 lifetimes ago when I did this and then I did that? I struggled through that one, and I've struggled through this one. I have lived. Close quotes. The text says, no, you have dreamed Do you awaken in the morning and realize that you've had a whole night of dreams about receiving ribbons and trophies from what you've accomplished in the world? And then you say, oh, that was very real. The trophies must be out there sitting on my kitchen table. While you dreamt, it felt real enough. And that is the quality I'm speaking to you here. If you wish to take this as an affront, it's perfectly fine. It will not disturb my peace at all. Until you fully decide to come into life as the presence of the Christ mind, as the presence of capital L love, until you decide to own each moment of your experience as completely, totally self-created, for no other reason that you've chosen it from the perfect infinite freedom of your unlimited being until that happens your life has not yet begun when you look upon all things with acceptance without judgment through the eyes of forgiveness dismantling every judgment and every false perception when you decide to embody only the reality of capital l love no matter what anybody else is doing that is when life begins As of this date on your calendar, there have been only a handful of beings who have truly lived life upon this plane, a very small handful. There are many of us that would absolutely be thrilled if you would decide to join that club. I'll let you in on a little secret. Until you do, you do not get to graduate. You'll never leave this plane as filled as it is with conflict and suffering, until you seem to have had the lived experience of walking this earth totally, completely as the thought of love in form, with no other allegiances but to love. Until that happens, you will never leave this plane. You will never take up your cross and follow me. You will spin around again and again 
and again, only to be confronted by the same need in each new present moment before every breath to choose for love totally and completely with every fiber of your being. Only when that happens will you finally look heavenward and say, Father, let's get on with it. Enough time has been wasted. It's gone. It's fine. It doesn't matter. Right now, I'm committed to love. Bring on whatever I must experience to bring up from the depths of my consciousness the places where I've hidden it within me to bring up every seeming obstacle that must yet be dissolved by the light of grace, of perfect love. And I will do whatever I can. From my side of the fence, I will do what I can to open up those places, to feel those places, to embrace those places, to love those places, to claim those places as totally, completely self-created. And I will let my parents off the hook. I will let my siblings off the hook. I will let my great, 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 great grandfather off the hook. I'll let Adam and Eve off the hook. I'll even let the government off the hook. And I will extend love to myself and through myself enough to heal my apparent dreamed separation from the Creator. I'll be humble enough to recognize that if I'm having an experience, because I know I made the commitment to healing, if I'm having an experience, then you as creator have indeed brought me all good things. For this moment of experience can be seen through eyes that recognize that it is just a stepping stone to the perfect peace that I seek. My life will no longer be mine, for I know not how to correct that one fundamental error. And yet I can surrender into feeling each moment fully and choosing capital L love anyway. And love will dissolve the pain I have carried, all because I insisted on trying to separate myself from the source of my being. This little gnat of mine will finally be put to rest, for the only thing that can truly shine is the Christ, is the Christ mind. For Christ, as a mind, as an energy state, as a way of experiencing actuality, this means all of the sons and daughters of the Creator, all, every offspring of creation, this is God's only creation. The rest of it is attributed to you. Even space and time were created by you as a human being. Your creator's only creation is consciousness, is you, the truth of you. You are love. And creation creates only that which is like unto itself. And creation is only love. It's only the creative energy that some would call love. Many of you believe you are on a spiritual path. You will know if that is true by your willingness to feel and experience 
totally and completely exactly what is in front of you moment to moment. So if you have a conflict with another and you sit in your chair and you decide to pray or meditate in order to change the feeling state inside yourself, and then you arise later and say, ah, there it is, I'm feeling much better now. But the issue has not been solved with the other. Nothing has changed. Therefore, go to the other, open your heart, share, resolve. If you have offended another, ask them to pardon you. If you have judged another, admit it. Ask them to pardon you. It's only in such a way that you can truly heal the place of conflict within you. Beloved friends, the essence of this lesson is quite simple. Where are you right now? Are you willing to allow yourself to see everything around you and within you as the doorway to the kingdom of heaven? It's only waiting for you to acknowledge its presence and open it. Are you willing to truly be right where you are, totally and completely right where you are? And the mind says, well, of course, I want a spiritual path. But rest assured, if you look well into your feelings and you find any trace of resistance, you have not yet made the necessary commitment that gives you the power to open that door. What is that necessary commitment? It's the commitment to feeling everything fully. In this dimension, do not deny the role of feeling, for in this dimension, feeling is everything. You can't even know the presence of your Creator unless you feel it. It's not about your words. It's not about your labels. It's not about your deeds. It's about the felt sense of the awareness of the truth that is true always. You and your Creator are one. You remain as your Creator created you to be. Feeling is the lesson of this message. only through feeling that you truly awaken. Concepts and ideas can begin to direct the mind to believe that there's something out there, something that is attractive, that might be better than what you've been doing before. And yet the concepts and ideas do not in themselves open the door. They are symbols, and that is all. A symbol cannot quench your thirst. It is only at the level of genuine feeling that you can once again know the presence of the Creator who dwells within you, around you, and through you, even now. Feel what you have created as a substitute for truth. Own it, look upon it, and then let it go. Learn that regardless of what choice you have made in the past, once you've embraced it, once you've felt it, you remain perfectly innocent and imbued with the power to choose again to feel 
not think about, but to feel, to learn once again to feel the glorious warmth that permeates the kingdom of heaven. Nothing you do with time can match the importance of what we have shared in this lesson. Nothing you do in the field of time holds a candle to the incredible gift that is waiting for you. Therefore, use time constructively by deciding to extend love, that love, and, and ask love to teach you of itself. Indeed, beloved and holy friends, when you have done this, you will find yourself translated into a form that could never possibly be contained by the space and volume of a physical body. You will look upon this entire dimension as a mere temporary learning device. You will set it aside just as a child sets aside a toy that has been outgrown. But you'll do it with deep appreciation and love for the toy that you've played with for so long. You'll carry it with you as a deep sense of gratitude for everything that this physical dimension has brought to you. There will not be a molecule of beingness within you that will feel any resentment any longer, any anger, or any remorse for anything. All of your experience will have become totally acceptable to you, for it was by such experience that you were finally driven to want only the capital T truth. From this day forward, once you reach that point, you will never again be able to truly convince yourself that all of your attempts to stay distracted or to conform to the world have really accomplished anything. You will find that your mind begins to penetrate the unconscious habits that you have created in an attempt to hide from what must yet be felt. You will know perfectly well when you have simply been deluding yourself. And you'll start to smile and say, oh yes, there I go again. Well, I might as well set that aside. And then I'll plant my feet firmly on the ground here and I'll live with passion from the truth of the kingdom of heaven. In the way of the heart, we will speak ever more directly and even more forcefully to you. For the time comes quickly when this planet will not be willing to tolerate an untidy house guest that are not willing to vibrate at the frequency of being toward which the planet herself is preparing to move. Therefore, be not caught by coming home one day and discovering that the landlord has changed the locks and that you have not yet a place to, let, to rest your head. Rather, become the living embodiment of love, of this energy of creation, and journey with your Holy Mother into an entirely new dimension of being. And never forget to sing, laugh, dance, and play along the way. Be you therefore at peace, beloved friends. Amen. So that's lesson six in the way of mastery. That's a little bit deeper dive into the idea that love heals all things and that it is possible for you to choose for love in each new present moment, even prior to every breath.
And if you're willing to do that, you will change your experience of life in ways that nothing can interrupt. Nothing can block you from creating an experience that transcends the physical, that transcends all judgment. And it begins simply enough by choosing to cancel my need to be right, by choosing to be vigilant about every energy of tension or contraction or negativity within me, and using that awareness of those energies as an alarm system to alert me to the fact that whatever I've been doing right now with my mind energy is just off the mark. It's not accurate. And... I can choose again. I can change the focus of my conscious awareness. Sometimes with a breath, sometimes with a breath session, sometimes with a goal canceling or a worksheet process, sometimes with a targeted journaling that Michael calls the mind shifter. Sometimes by just asking to be shown by life, by love, by consciousness in each moment. What's, what's mine to do here? How can I be a blessing to myself and others in this moment? So that's all I'm going to read for today. I'm not going to go into Lesson 7 or go back to Lesson 6. We've got about five minutes left. If anybody wants to raise a hand, 563-999-3581. How is this landing for you? What's it like listening? What's bristling up within you that wants to say, wait a minute, that can't be that simple? We certainly had a whole host of people in the group last night being challenged by the suggestion that we learn to cancel our need to be right and let that be the beginning of a new process. And of course, you know, most of us who've been trained in the conscious logical mind, we want to know, okay, so then if I if I do cancel my need to be right, then what's going to happen? Why would I want to do that? What's the value? What's going to what's going to change for the better, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And the fact of the matter is, we cannot know. We can't know until we do. If we step into the experience, then we have the experience. But until then, we talk about it. And talking about it is not the same as being it, doing it, allowing it. Area code 541, you're in the air. Hello, Dr. Tim. Celinda here, just with a short comment. Really appreciate... Please go on. I really appreciate what you've just read today. In fact, we're having challenges in our community, and it hit me right in my solar plexus. This is what I... um, Um, get to recommit myself to and uh, take 
the steps that I need to take out of the common consensus and to be whom I was created to be. And so I really thank you. This is perfect for me. And I have realized that um, I need to hold my belief systems very, very lightly so that I can be open to any new revelation that will help me either transform them into something uh, completely different or to um, reevaluate them and shift in my uh, awareness, my perspective, broaden it. So thank you. I, I'm beginning to become more and more uh, untrusting of my own belief systems, um, especially when they start getting concretized. Well, thank you well, very much. Well, you know, you, you said that you need to hold your belief systems more lightly. Right. And what I would like to point out to you is that's the opposite of what this work is calling us to. This work is calling us to release, not hold, to go into each moment with divine ignorance empty-headed not knowingness to look at every belief system we have and see it as false, as old, dead thought. So just a little oh, I'm major, major shift. <laughs> yeah, a little tiny major shift, and I'm being stretched more and more to seeing that if I'm going to cling to anything, uh, it is going to be a disservice to myself and others. So thank you for reminding me that it's not just holding them more lightly. It's eventually just opening the palm of my mind's hand and letting them drop. Yes, it is being open. The invitation in this work is to be open. I especially appreciated this lesson. Thank you. You're quite welcome and deserving. Thank you for the comment input. I will mute you so you can listen to the second hour. I will remind us all that we come from love. We're made of the stuff we call love. We actually are love and everything else is false. Welcome, Jeannie Rice. Thank you, Dr. Sam. I appreciate it. You're quite welcome and deserving. Have a wonderful show. Thank you. So welcome everybody to the second hour of Mindshifters Radio and today is Wednesday, January the 17th, 2024 and our call-in number is 563-999-3581 and press 1 and that puts you in the queue to talk to us and we would love to hear your comments and questions because that makes this your show and we are um, doing our... Hold on, I'm trying to get something else going here. All right. So we have started our enlightenment study. And if you um, go to our website, if you want to miss a show, you can go to the website, whyagain.org, and you can click on over at the Kaboris link and go down to Enlightenment Study. And what I'm doing is editing out just the portion of the radio show uh, where we can see Enlightenment. 
and uh, putting those links out there so you can go back and, and click and listen to the ones that you might have missed. So they'll all be out there. And at this time, I'm going to welcome Michael. Well, thank you, dear heart, and welcome, everybody. Delighted that you're with us and that we get to move forward to the next level of our discussion on the first century Aramaic process, especially of forgiveness, and moving forward into deeper and deeper understanding of what these teachings mean. And so at this point, we're on our third day of looking into the Enlightenment, which is what we have published so far from the Aramaic language. And we're laying a foundation for understanding that the Aramaic language is the prime language, that it's the first language of those teachings. And that when we come into an understanding of the meaning of the words in Aramaic, then all of a sudden clarity comes, sensibility comes, and a lot of things that you know, appeared to be conflicting or didn't make any sense. The reason they didn't make any sense is because they were lost in translation. There is a whole consistent teaching that supports us in stepping into strength through connectedness with our original essence, our original being. If you go back into the Aramaic language, you know, there's a word that's used in our language to describe what it, what it is to be connected to a certain body of teachings, and that word is disciple. And we have a derivative word in English which has been grossly misunderstood and it's something that oftentimes is done to children, and we say that we discipline them. And people have sayings, misinterpreted sayings like, spare the rod, spoil the child, as though if you don't have a stick to beat a child with, then you're not disciplining them, <laughs> when in fact the rod was something you leaned on for support in time of weakness. And the word disciple means properly taught. When properly taught in the Aramaic sense, one is actually baptized. And baptized doesn't mean have to do with pouring water on somebody's head. <laughs> you go back and you check out, and Yeshua went through that ritual. It was a requirement in the tradition that he was raised in. But you notice he never poured water on anybody's head. And to baptize in Aramaic means to make strong, to, to make a pillar of someone that that through connectedness through knowledge of the truth of following the disciplines that Yeshua taught one becomes solidly fixed as a pillar in the presence of love being the presence of love fixed in form 
you look at that passage and and it does come through fairly well in the Greek here in Revelations it talks about the he that overcomes what are you overcoming you're overcoming the misunderstanding you're overcoming the error you're overcoming the energetic patterns that do not support you living as a human being so to he that overcomes he will become a pillar a fixture in the temple Greek trying to the temple of my god what is it is, is it a building no temple is your form that you become a strong fixture in your own form is the result of this teaching when you integrate and do the work you're not going to get the the teaching from somebody's words again you go back to yesterday and you listen he says don't be known for your much speaking words aren't going to get it each person is going to have to step into and do the work required to become that kind of a fixture to gain that kind of strength you can't get it from somebody else you can get support for arriving there if you're doing your process work but you can't get it from somebody else and you can't get it from words and you can't get it from a book you can only get it from entering into a and you remember there's one particular case where a group of disciples are with Yeshua and he tells them what it is they need to do and half of his disciples say too hard a saying and they leave they do not want to do the work required and then it gets turned into a belief system oh all you have to do is believe well excuse me not if you listen to the man it's not about belief <laughs> yes belief has a part to play but there's a work to be done and so this whole presentation is to invite you into and to offer you the tools for doing your work and that's the work of healing so we left off yesterday with the idea or the the statement from Yeshua that was about stress and how stress is created where we're told it says in the in the Greek translation sufficient for the day are the evils thereof and we explained yesterday that that word evil actually means incomplete or unripened and what he's saying is don't have any more goals than those you can complete today in your next waking period sufficient for the day are the incomplete projects thereof and that you overload yourself if you put more into your mind than your mind can handle and your mind can't handle tomorrow next week next month next year five years ten years 20 years 50 years can't handle all those goals it will eventually break down if we do that so when we get to the subtle meanings of the Aramaic words one it's an easy proof that that's that's where the teaching was it's an easy proof that the Aramaic is prime that it came first though virtually the, the ivory tower built out of Greek is going to say no that's just not possible no no it, it it's ours we we did it it's Greek well yes you would say that's all Greek to him and so we talked about a couple of passages that in English as translated to the Greek does not make much sense or more before we move forward there's a 
a belief that's developed or there's a speaking that happens through the Greek uh, translations that have led to churchianity where we're told that this man Yeshua is God. But then, in the name of a teaching that the Greeks will tell you was Greek, this particular passage I'm going to talk about right now, it even says in the uh, the Greek translations, this was left in the original Aramaic. <laughs> now, kind of hard to deny that the original was Aramaic, when in the very text that the Greeks translated said, well, this one we're going to leave in the original Aramaic. And it's Mark 15:43. It's also reported in Matthew 27:46. And it says, in about the ninth hour, he cried out, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. And please don't hold me to pronunciation of the Aramaic. I'm not very good at it. <laughs> so the Greeks will tell you now, the Greek translations and those who follow it, will tell you that here was God hanging on a cross and that he said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Now, I mean, let's add two plus two. How can God be forsaken by God? It just doesn't make any sense. And we're given a tone. Remember we talked yesterday about the fantastical results that are given or that are produced by the perceptual mind. Well, the activity of that mind, if it's primed and lives in a world of perception, a world of fantasy, rather than in the world of actuality, then there are all kinds of just crazy things that, that destroy the foundation for truth. So do you really think that the creator was hanging on a cross saying, creator, why have you abandoned me? Does, does that make any sense? In Aramaic, what we hear being said, and some translations in Aramaic will tell you that the, the greeting was rather than a formal, my God, my God, it was much more like a, uh, a, an intimate greeting, more like Papa, Papa, so speaking to creator. Here's Yeshua, and the word abandoned is similar in Aramaic to set aside for a special purpose. So if a mind has been programmed in the fantasies of fear, being abandoned by the creator is just a horrific thing and leaves people in what kind of place if that's what they have, what, if that's what's contained within them, and that's how they perceive a statement like this, where, in fact, rather than a dejected, fear-based statement about having been abandoned by himself, what we hear is a mind and... and can you think with excitement about being that person having gone through that torture and such? Can you think with excitement about being in that place? If not, then this is tough to understand because you've been steeped in the perceptions based in fear and hostility 
and haven't worked those through for yourself yet. So it, it would be hard to imagine yourself going, having gone through what he went through and hanging on a cross and then saying with excitement, oh, oh, my insight, Papa, Papa, I got it. For this you set me aside. There's a demonstration going to happen here. Remember when we talked about him referring to Peter as Satan, get thee behind me, Satan, for you think in the mind of man rather than the plan of God. Remember how that was defining this mind of man with all of it energetic activity based in hostility or fear, and so many times being told to get rid of fear, but being steeped in fear. And then when Yeshua heals the high priest servant, and people say, yes, but that got him killed. Did you notice that? And his reply would offer would be something like, yes, but did you notice that standing as a space of active love and bringing healing to the arch enemy is what a true human being would do. And now that I am grounded, now that I am founded in my true being, as you have the capability of doing, then if they kill me, I won't stay dead. They can't keep me that way. He's demonstrating the power of functioning out of and functioning as the active presence of love. So here he is in this statement in Mark 15:43 or or Matthew 27:46 saying oh I got it this is what you saved me for to show humanity that I can go through the worst of the fear-based traumas I've taught them I've told them to get rid of the fear <laughs> most of them haven't but I at least taught it to them and now I understand so they're going to put me to death, and they can't keep me that way. I'm going to demonstrate this for all of humanity. Now, people who haven't done the work to clean up their own fear-based minds are going to go, yeah, well, that sounds crazy. But could you imagine being in that posture, realizing the lesson that you're about to hand to humanity and going, oh, okay, Dad, I got it. I now understand what you saved me for, what you reserved me for, not set me aside, not abandon me. And you'll remember several times throughout the story of the scriptures, they're going after him, you know. They come after him. What does he do? He just disappears. <laughs> I'm gone. He disappears in the midst of the crowd. So he's referring to, oh, oh, that, so, so you repeatedly preserved me, saved me from that so that I could give this lesson to the world. This was my destiny. He's having an exciting insight into his destiny, and for this I was reserved or saved or set aside. Now, to me, that's one of the very basic principles that says Greek, God's on a cross, abandoned by God. That makes no sense whatsoever. And then recognizing the primacy of the Aramaic that 
oh, now this makes sense. I got it. I wasn't abandoned. I was set aside for a special purpose. Oh, got it. Okay. And and that's why the, the nuances delivered by the Aramaic, the tools delivered by the Aramaic, empower us to do the work of healing. And, and, and the, some of the primary work of healing means the overcoming of this mind of, based in fear. And that in Revelation, see, he that overcomes, he will not taste of this second death. What's the first death? The first death is when we fall unconscious into this false image of ourselves and our minds, and the active presence of love is no longer alive or prime in us. That's the first death. We fall into the ego state. The second death would be the death of the body. You overcome the sphere-based. You do the work required. It's not an easy work to do. You start looking at the terror and the trauma and the insanity that's gone down. And you breathe through the listening of that terror and that trauma, and you heal the energetic influences in yourself that are resonated into activity by that. You've done your work. You've overcome that fear-based mind that has a grip on virtually everybody in the culture. Even the tough guy that pulls out his guns and says, yeah, I'll face them down. Yeah, why do you have to be a tough guy and, and have guns to face them down? Because you live in terror. And you haven't dealt with that in your own mind. A couple of other pieces that when you understand them from the Aramaic, you get a taste of the deepening of this strengthening that occurs, this baptism in truth. Oh, he actually said that, didn't he? Baptized not in water, but in spirit. Spirit is breath and truth. So when you, you get the nuance, you go, oh, I'm fed by that. And, and what we want to do is feed you and support you into your awakening. You can't have my awakening. I can't have yours. I can't have Yeshua's. You can't have Yeshua's. I can be supported by yours. You can be supported by mine. We can be supported by Yeshua's if we have access to the actual energetic emanations from the man, i.e. the words. But if you have the energetic emanations from a person who has not done the work, who's trying to interpret the words, then they'll come up with silly things like, in the name of a man who 15 or more times says, fear not, they'll come up with words like, fear of God is the beginning of wisdom. That's what happens when somebody hasn't done the work that the man prescribed. That's the person who walked away saying, too hard a saying to actually go in and deal with those assaulting energies that are in me from generations and generations and generations and generations. Isaiah 2.22 has another one. It's a little subtler. But you hear the Greeks translating that passage as saying, cease ye from man whose breath is in his nostrils, for wherein is he to be accounted of? Like, what the heck does that mean? I mean, 
CC, CC would seem like it would mean leave, depart from, go away from. A man whose breath is in his nostrils. Well, who doesn't breathe through their nose? Does that mean we have to abandon everybody, every human being? And in fact, the Greeks do kind of translate that. Oh, yeah, well, you, you just abandon man and you forget about man and you just count on the creator. In Aramaic, a more proper translation or a more proper sense of those words, and here's where it starts to make sense again, it's basically saying, stay away from a man who's huffing and puffing in anger. For how do you hold such a man accountable? So, you know, don't hang out with people who live in rage, who, you know, their breath is in their nostrils. They're huffing and puffing because that is an energy that you don't want to engage in. You don't want to be part of. Instruction set for living as, capturing, and reflecting the love in which you live, move, and have your being into the world, the thing that's been called the Lord's Prayer, and you hear this translation that speaks about, and it totally conflicts. You know, for those who want to say it is all the literal, inerrant word, well, here's a place that says, God, according to the Greeks, don't, don't lead us into temptation. And yet, there's another passage that says, let no man say they're tempted of God. It's like, well, what do you do with this as the inerrant word? Well, that word, lead us, in, lead us in, don't lead us into temptation, is actually an appeal for support in healing and would be more properly understood as support us and, and keep us from being led into temptation, being attracted to a lower energy that would defile us and defile our lives. And that, we'll just do one more, and that is Matthew twenty six twenty four, where the Greek translations say, Jesus said to him, Verily I say unto to you, that this night before the cock crows, other most other translations are either that that or the word rooster is used is referred to, and they're thinking that it's about a rooster crowing. That you'll defy me three times, thrice. So, you know, I can remember hearing that passage. I always think it had to do with a rooster. You know, cock crows in the morning, so before it does three times, you know, there's. There's a, when you go to the Aramaic, you just get a deeper, more complete understanding of that culture and the brain cells for how that culture worked and, and a more complete and useful meaning of what was really being said. So uh, the, the richness um, and the comprehension is so much deeper when, as with this one, you have the brain cells for what was actually being said. And this had nothing to do with the rooster crowing in Aramaic. <laughs> actually, there were calls to prayer 
And in Aramaic, what he said is, Verily I say unto thee, that this night before the town crier blows the shofar, you'll defy me, deny me three times. The word had no reference to a rooster. There was a morning wake-up. There were actually, historically, the Jews had basically three watches in the night, and each of the three watches, someone was appointed to blow the shofar to let everybody in town, you know, not everybody had a, a, a wristwatch. So it warned people or it notified people what time it was. And then when the Romans con- conquered Judea, their night watch, there was a fourth watch added. And what Yeshua is referring to here is that he's confronting Peter about his humanity, and he's saying that, you know, before the third watch is complete, nothing to do with the rooster crowing, the shofar is going to blow to tell you what time it is. And what you're going to do is you're going to deny me three times before that happens. So Peter's been given a symbol. He's totally gone unconscious. And he, he's, well, I would never deny you. And then under great stress, what happens? Remember we talked about the power person dynamic? Under great stress, the automatic decision in, system in his mind totally blocks out that he's been warned that he's going to do this denial. And he denies that he would even conceive of doing that. But under great stress, his perceptual mind, which is where he lives and is trapped, shows him only the terror based in stress. His own goals for survival put him into that power person dynamic, and he denies even knowing Yeshua. And so for me, that one is is one that just, points up that when we have the brain cells that the Aramaic mind was using when it spoke those words, it just comes to a whole other standing. And, you know, imagine the, the Peter, he's just been told by his favorite teacher that he's going to deny him, and he's like, that, I mean, that's ridiculous. In his normal mind, that would be ridiculous. He's saying, no, 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 I would never do that. But can you imagine the survival goals that he held that were activated at such a depth of fear that he forgets he's been warned, forgets that he said he would not deny him, and he denies him. So I don't know him. I don't know him. This is a mind under great stress because of the goals that it holds. And remember, when we talked about the power person dynamic, there are three levels of behavior, three behaviors that are done relating to the power person. And the level of stress you're under determines what behavior you do. When there's no stress, you do whatever you did to get along with your power person. When stress starts to build, you do whatever you did to resist and survive with your power person. When you become ultra-stressed, you do what your power person did to you that you hated the most. Well, we know that probably Peter's power person did not have much of a relationship with him, denied him. And so Peter plays out that behavior when under stress. Can you imagine, I mean, in the name of someone, Peter's been with this man full-time for three years, and... I don't know how many times he must have heard him say, 
I went through once and counted, and if I remember, it was either 15 or 16 times in the New Testament, Yeshua says in Aramaic, fear not. Now, this isn't about theology. This isn't about religion. Yeshua wasn't teaching that. Men made that whole story up. Yeshua was teaching how to clean up your own mind and to live as a pillar in the temple, your own body, a fixture made of love that inhabits your own form and, and goes nowhere other than to that space of love when things occur. Now, not proclaiming that I know anybody that lives there 100%, and certainly not proclaiming that I do but recognizing that as I have engaged the deeper nuances and the deeper understandings, I have been able to move more and more and more and deeper and deeper into that state. Peter, at that point, was about three years into his work. And Peter's the guy that, you know, he was the head dude of the church. He was made, I'm going to build my church upon this rock. I'm going to build the, the body of teaching that I'm offering to the world on this man. And yet, after three years full time, he still has such levels of fear. Remember, he was one of the ones who was taken to the Garden of Gethsemane and fell asleep, went unconscious, lost the ability to hold the space of love. He's just at three years, he's just entering the practice. Now, you've probably heard me say before, when I look back over the years and I look at people who actually truly engage this teaching and this work, and that it takes an average of five to ten years of someone who's actually doing the work for them to comprehend, really comprehend, what it is that we're talking about. And so Peter's at the three-year point. And the stress that he was under, you know, you can bet he was well acquainted with the Old Testament and over, you know, both the Old and the New, over 300 times the directive is given to fear not. Yeshua has done it at least 15 times. How much fear must there have been for him to lose consciousness in that situation you know first person asked well aren't you with that guy over there that we're getting ready to crucify he's oh no no I don't, I don't know him i don't know no not me no no second time next level of stress third time and then he remembers his 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 mind is cleared enough that he goes oh my god what have i done oh, anybody else recognize that one you've made it commitment you're going to do things a certain way and then you lose consciousness well that's just the invitation to do your work and go inside and clean up your mind to apply forgiveness to the removal of those fantastical perceptions based in hostility or fear that have gone on generation after generation after generation after generation in our world Jean and I watched a uh, an interesting video last night had to breathe a lot uh, of uh, on the History Channel, and it was a video about the actual man. His name was Vlad, V-L-A-D. He's the guy that today they have the whole myth about Dracula. Well, it's the true story of Count Dracula, and they called him Vlad the Impaler. And you think about 
so many places in history where such terrors and traumas occurred that knock people unconscious and have them functioning out of their fear-based minds, their fear-based perceptions. In one case, this man who was the leader of a certain area of Romania wanted to make sure that his subjects, actually kind of like some of the conversations going on today, were in enough terror that they would obey. And he literally had hundreds, thousands of trees cut to spikes and he impaled 10,000 people, women and children included, on these spikes where it would take, in some cases, days for them to die. And this was done in front of his castle as a fear tactic to make sure that his population obeyed him. Now, just that's just one little example of the insanity that's gone on in humanity and the tactics that have been used to instill fear in people. How do you get to a mind that has no fear if your genetic history includes stuff like that? Or born apart, or 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 the the hordes, you know. How do you do that? Well, it takes a master to teach it, and that's what Yeshua was. People often say to me, Michael, that that worksheet you created—that's just so amazing. It's like, well, actually, I didn't create it; I copied it. <laughs> Yeah, I brought some of it from the Aramaic language. I spent decades, decades working with it to understand how to bypass my own fear-based mind to comprehend what he was even talking about. And the objective of doing that and making this available is so that you don't have to spend decades to understand it, that you can take the tools and you can put them to work. So there's some of the reasons why I'm totally committed to allowing the world to bring to the world the awareness that the Aramaic was the man's language. And if you don't know the thought structure, you can't understand the tools and you'll make up dogmas and doctrines that allow you to all kinds of crazy things. You know, you look at the Crusades, how many millions were murdered in the name of Christ. You look at today in America, Christian nationalism, how many are ready to destroy their neighbors in the name of one who said, oh, you need to function as love toward your neighbors. Then, you know, there are so many different translations out there and people will tell you and they tell you with sincere belief that, you know, not one jot or tittle would be changed. By the way, a jot or tittle are the smallest characters in the Aramaic language. See, nobody would change one jot or tittle. But if you've got ten different Bibles on your shelf, ten different translations, 
If you look in each one of them, what you'll find is, even if they come from the same company, what you'll find is in each one of them there's a copyright notice. They've been copyrighted under the laws of the United States. Do you know what one of the prerequisites is in order to copyright a work that has already been copyrighted? You know what the prerequisite is? There has to be at least 20% of the words in it different from someone else's copyrighted translation. So if nothing else, if you, let's say you and I decided, well, we've got a great new insight into the Bible and we're going to translate it. We're going to give the world a new translation. Then we'd have to look at all of the Bibles that are out there, like how many hundreds of translations, 32,000 sects of so-called Christianity, and we'd have to make sure that our translation was at least, at least 20% different from every one of those. Do you suppose it's true that not one jot or tittle has been changed? They asked Yeshua, what's the first law? Remember that in Aramaic, the word law does not mean the rule of a superior, but it means how it works. It just simply means how does it work. So here they are asking Yeshua, we want to function as human beings. In essence, that would be the long form of the question. And what do we need to do? And the answer that the Greeks tell us he gave is, well, you've got to love. we got a verb here called love, and you have to do that to your neighbor. Now, of course, you start looking at the translation of that word, and now you get into some really crazy stuff. In fact, we see some politicians doing some of those crazy definitions in the name of love. But in Aramaic, he didn't say, love your neighbor. He didn't say, love God as yourself. Since love is not a verb, it is a noun. If you hold a newborn child and you tap into the essence of that newborn, you will notice that you're now in direct experience of the presence of love. And that newborn is not loving you, but is love. Yeshua understood that. He did not mistakenly tell people that they were supposed to verb their neighbors with this thing called love. In Aramaic, what he said was that when you think of the creator, when you think of neighbor, there is a filter in the frontal lobes of your brain that's called rachma, and you need to keep rachma active. And when you do that, so instead of love God, neighbor, as yourself, that you maintain that filter rachma open so that you function as love in the presence of the creator or your thoughts about the creator in the presence of your neighbor. And that's how you maintain your human life. So that's the instruction that he's giving. And, and so rather than love being a verb, you have to recognize that it's a noun. And Rachma being 
the gateway that allows that state of being, the noun, the being that you are, to be present in your own physiology. Again, Vladimir Lenin was brilliant. He said the way you destroy a culture is change the meaning of its words. There was a gentleman back around, if I remember correctly, I believe it was third century, a man named Rabola. His name is actually uh, the root. It's where we get the word rabble rouser in our culture. He was priest in the church. And he went on a rampage of destroying Aramaic Bibles and replacing them with his own translations, changing the meaning of the words that Yeshua said are your perfect life. When you hear those words and you actually experience the energetic vibration, the energetic impact of those words, and you hold something based in hostility or fear that those words resonate in you, you go into process. And remember, we've defined this in this work, we've defined processing as the ability to hold love conscious, active, and present when something less than love comes up. So when we engage in the frequencies that he said, when he said, my words are your perfect life, those frequencies, those energetic patterns will open and give us the the opportunity to process through everything less than that. And until we do that, we can't hear those words. So they first come in parables. Parable in Aramaic means parallel meaning. And you'll hear a point where it says, without a parable, he did not speak. Now, the Greeks are going to tell you, we want you to be literal. We want you to know this This is every literal word as it fell from the lips of the creator. And so you have to ignore that passage that says, He did not speak without a parable. Everything was in parables. Everything had this parallel meaning. And what we're looking to do is to develop the brain cells to go to the next level of understanding those deeper levels of meaning. And so that's the direction we want to head. We want to, there's a, if if you've ever read the book Stranger in a Strange Land by Robert Heinlein, been decades since I read it. Great book. But there's a, a word that he used in that book that described the state that the main character in the book would go into when he didn't understand something. If you remember that book, you remember the word is grok. And basically, Stranger in a Strange Land is a science fiction where uh, this guy is raised on the moon, so it's a totally different, I mean, totally, totally, completely different world than humans. And he comes to Earth. And he's... His his whole set, his whole mindset is something so different that, you know, I mean, what these humans are doing is pretty difficult to understand. And so when when he would come into a circumstance or a situation where he didn't understand, he would withdraw into himself and process that. And Heinlein called that grokking. Hopefully, as we unfold this study and Hopefully in the last few days and the last 12 years, there have been many things that we have brought forward that 
support you going into that space of grokking, of maybe having to rearrange inside of yourself your understanding of everything in order to allow and to make a space where a new frequency, a new vibration, new energetic pattern can come in to the next level to the, to the point where you are able to function fully as you were created to function, as conscious, active, present love that includes things like integrity and generosity and cooperation. It includes those natural attributes of life, of compassion, that allow you to stand in the space of the active joy that is your true nature. And that you deliver that everyone that you meet regardless of who they are or what their status is or what they've done or what they're doing now that doesn't mean that you have to lay down if you come to somebody brutal and let them brutalize you you hold them accountable for that but if that person who's going to brutalize you resonates something based in you in hostility and fear your work is to clean up your hostility and fear and and come to the point where whatever happens you can keep this condition of rachma active in your mind and by keeping that condition of rachma active in your mind whatever happens in your world you can bring you can maintain your true essence which is love in the presence of that and if your mind serves up any form of hostility or fear you recognize that that your mind is dealing now from a position of corrupt data and there is a work for you to do and if you notice patterned forms of hostility or fear those deeper patterns are the things that tend to nullify the presence of love, that tend to shut down Rachma and lock us into other energetic dynamics. And if you recognize yourself there, then you want to bring love present to yourself in gentleness and care and concern and compassion for yourself as you do the next level of your process work. Only you can do your process work. Only I can do my process work. One of the sweet benefits that I get with doing this radio show and have over the last 12 years and this teaching over the last half century plus is that I have the opportunity to interact with people who, who resonate things that I need to deal with. And I get the gift of standing in the space of love and processing what I need to process grokking what I need to grok to step up to the plate to keep my essential nature love present in this event in this experience and to recognize that when I can't that's my opportunity again that doesn't mean that you don't hold somebody accountable who's out of line one of my early teachers was a, a Superior Court judge named Asa D. Kelly. He's actually the man that asked us to create the Laws of Living program for the prison system in in Albany, Georgia. And this man put thousands of people behind bars over his tenure on the bench, but he never punished one of them. I mean, he was the closest thing to a saint I'd ever met. Gentle man, gentle in words, gentle in mannerism. 
I understand there were earlier times in his life where he wasn't so much that, but he did appear to, at least appear to do his work. And when a heinous criminal would come before him, somebody had really committed some pretty heinous crimes, he would embrace them, he would hold them in love, and he'd explain that he'd been hired to do a job, and the job was to determine who was safe in that community and who wasn't, and would explain to people who came before him as a judge that, you know, the community has taken up a collection, built a building with bars around it, and they'd asked me, he would say, they've asked me to determine whether you are safe in this community or you are not, and if you're not, I'm going to put you behind bars, but I'm not going to punish you. He had no interest in punishment. It was pretty amazing. I mean, some of this stuff whew, came through the courts in Albany, Georgia, backwoods Georgia, some pretty heavy-duty stuff. It's like kind of like you were in deliverance territory. And yet he would hold to that presence of love and offer uh, an uplifting hand to even the most heinous criminal and would assign them to laws of living if they showed an interest in doing their healing work. We actually cut the prison population by over 90% by using the first century century Aramaic words of Yeshua. By coming to an understanding, by getting clarified in what those words meant. And, you know, to me, it kind of verified that if you actually get to hear and grok those words, your perfect life is following right behind. It's right there in line with it. And, And again, each person must do their own journey. Much as we would like to say, oh, yes, we can fix you. Nobody can fix you. And you're not broken. Your body, mind may have some crazy generational patterns and such. You are perfectly intact. And the objective is to throw off everything in your body, mind, which includes your genes, that do not support you living and incarnating fully in this world as the presence of love, of throwing those things off. And it takes engaging in the right frequencies to do that and processing those things that are less than love, those hostilities and fears and guilts and griefs and rages and pains and traumas. So all in all, that's the purpose of our study and why we're moving into this book, Enlightenment. And Miss Jean, we're down to about the last eight or nine minutes. So do we have anybody in the phone queue with a hand up? Well, let's say hello. It's, I believe it's Dusty904. You're on the air. Uh, well, thank you very much, and uh, aloha, Michael, and everybody. Aloha, Mr. Dusty. How are you, young man? Well, I'm doing pretty good, although my voice is a little froggy, but that's okay. Um, I have to tell you how delighted I am to hear someone else use the word grok. Oh, because I, <laughs> yeah, that's a great, I great word, feel- isn't it? It's a great word, and nobody understands it much anymore, but I I honestly feel like a stranger in a strange land anymore anyway. Not, and so <laughs> uh, it's perfect. It's perfect. And I want to say that your 
that explanation in the Aramaic of Jesus' dialogue, with Jesus' dialogue with them, with God, Father, whatever, um, is a real biggie. It's because I sat as an acolyte in little red and white robes for, what, six, seven years in the Episcopal Church. I was the only acolyte, and I used to listen to what they said. And it was like, uh-uh, uh-uh, no, no, miss that one. And maybe like 2% of everything that said had it even rang true in my depth. And I always thought that that thing on the cross, oh, why have you abandoned me, forsaken me, all that kind of stuff. And I thought, well, you know, that's a complete denial of everything that's gone on before. And so I never understood. And wow, your that explanation was so fine, brother. Um, that that freed up a lot of that kind of stuff for me because I got all locked up on the on the uh, any version of the Bible um, around that. Right. So well, that you know, was that was. Go ahead. Well, I was just going to say that over the years, it's interesting that um, probably. About 60% of people who've really connected with this work and moved forward with it, done something with it, have been Catholic, which basically Episcopal are pretty similar, and uh, yeah. probably another 25% have been Jewish. Mm-hmm. And the the reason, I think, is because each of those teachings provided people with the brain cells, even if they were miswired somewhat, which, you know, sadly, they're they're oftentimes twisted and miswired, but at least the basic brain cells are there. And, you know, Yeshua, when he says yeah. you've got to have the eyes to see and the ears to hear, isn't talking about physical eyes and ears. I think we can safely assume most everybody in this audience have what we call physical eyes and ears. But he was saying you've got to have the brain cells. And if you have no brain cells for it whatsoever, then it can't function for you. It can't be, you can't use it. And all it right, takes right. is a, a bit of rewiring, and all of a sudden you go, ah, big breath, right, comes with, oh, and what's that breath? That's Ruka moving through the system, cleaning up the gunk. Yeah, 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 yeah. You know, And the, the RF engineer part, I just see that as a circuit. And, yeah, we all have a circuit, and I knew the circuit in, in there wasn't really all wired hardly well at all, but it was something in there to work with. Right. So when right. you spoke yep. of it, yeah, right on. That gave me a the place to go. Da 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 da. And um, and the idea of instead of going from absolute despair and denial of the Godhead or however you want to put it to a joy in one's destiny. Wow. Is that a one yeah. monumental? <laughs> well, That's and you know stuff. when you when you. Yeah, when you experience the rewiring, and actually as you're speaking, and I'm kind of with you on this, I just Mm -hmm. had this whole flush of, you know, the hair on my arms (laughs) standing on end, and this flush of of energy that just went through my whole structure, like it, you, your, your words, your conversation put me into process on a whole other level, different piece of energy moving through my structure. So thank you for that. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah. I, I hear what you just said, and it not it really um, 
it's it's a powerful thing. It multiplies. Um, if you have a truth in you, and all of a sudden you hear someone else say that truth, maybe only in a slightly different way, and all of a sudden you go kaboom! Yay! Thank you so much. And and um, opens another piece of the, the process. Yeah, it does. And and your and your and your uh, uh, dialogue today was was definitely that. And one last thing before we run out of time, and this is um, kind of off track a little bit, maybe, but I read that, well, never mind, you know, why um, uh, Constantine and the Nicene uh, Council put together this kind of, excuse me for those who like it literally, but the kind of the fake Bible thing that they want, he wanted to put together for control like Vlad did, but he did it through, um, of course, to the religion. But at any rate, um, uh, back, I, I have read or heard or seen on a couple of occasions that some people way back in the day, if they had a particular spiritual point of view, a class, I can almost speak today, um, version of the whole uh, Jesus movement, and they were pretty early on, uh, they would often, as I have heard at least, would sign their name as if they were one of the disciples. Like, oh, yeah, I'm John or I'm Paul. And, he, and because if you wrote all that and said, yeah, I'm, I'm Ignatz Wazemski or something, nobody's going to read it. Yeah. And so I wonder how many of these things, you know, that have come through are valid at all. But what I heard you say from the Aramaic today, it resonated uh, as truth for me. And I thank you very much. Cool. Well, it's because I'm Ringo. (laughs) John, Paul, hey, you know. (laughs) Yeah, that's right. That's right. right. And Ringo could keep a beat. And you know what he did that made it great? He served the song. In fact, that's what they all did. That's one reason why they were so good. They were there to serve the song, not their own egos. Right. The there you go. That kind of yeah. is a nice metaphor for the whole summation of what we've talked about for the last since we stepped into the study three days ago. It's a good summation of it metaphorically. Yeah. You know, we're yeah. here to serve okay. that that teaching, that understanding, and the the integration of that into the world. Every mind, heart, and being is what we're committed to making it available to. And then, of course, what people choose to take and do with it is up to them. Yeah, exactly. Gotcha. But we'll keep putting one foot in front of the other and take it to critical mass. I think we'll keep moving it forward to every mind, heart, and being until we hit critical mass. And when critical mass is, is touched, then... The whole, as the physicist Yeshua said, a little leavening leavens the whole loaf. The whole of humanity is going to get a shift. And, you know, it takes everybody's participation and support in bringing uh-huh. that forward. So appreciate you. I, I just, uh, just real quick, because I know we're running out, you're, you're out of time. We're out of time. But that whole thing you just said also applies, I'm saying, to the individual. It's like the integration of all my parts into that critical mass of, oh, wow, this is what's true. Exactly. Yes. 
So, okay, yes, well, sir. mahalo and travel well. Mahalo. Okay. Aloha. Blessings, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Have the best year yet of your eternal life. It's an awesome gift to give the world. The world needs it. You're capable of delivering it. Blessings. <laughs>